I solved all my gift problems at Radio Shack's Christmas electronic sale. Got my son two-way bass re... Christmas, your kids can have this colorful, cuddly Burger King doll free when you buy... Clap on, clap off. Stop clapping. Tired of the same old boring holiday carols? Well, this ain't your parents' Christmas record. New from G7 Records, a propaganda Christmas featuring your favorite traditional Judeo-Christian classics with an edge. Come, they told me, pum 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 pum. I knew Boy King to see, pum 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 pum. The finest gifts we bring, pum 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 pum. Today before the King, pum 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 pum. And who could forget this festive favorite? Come, they told me, pum 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 pum. I knew Boy King to see, pum 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 pum. So, gather the whole family round the tree and watch Grandpa's face light up when he hears a modern take on this old classic. Come, they told me, pa-ra-pa-pa-pum. 48 songs spanning four double-length cassettes, available for a limited time only. Order now and get this free, non-denominational Santa mug. These songs and many more, available only through this limited time special TV offer. Don't delay, order today! Escape velocity! I don't think I've ever seen such a response as we received for last episode's episode. Yeah, I think that was our, definitely our most talked about, our most commented, our most shared episode so far. Why is that? Is it the celebrity of Chris Hedges? I think so, yeah. I think he's probably the biggest name. The biggest name we've had. That we've had on the show. Bigger than Wab Canoe? Well, maybe at the time, Wab Canoe's profile is bigger now that That's he right. has a show on Al Jazeera America. And getting taken to task by Canada's foremost intellectual, Ezra Levant, on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Chris Hedges really stirred the pot mm-hmm. for our listenership. He's a bit of a bit of a lightning rod. He is. That one. He's almost like the new 9-11. <laughs> because there's anti-Chris there's, Hedges truthers? Yes. Yeah. Like you either, you were either with them or against them yeah there is no in between yeah I, I will say that generally speaking the feedback was uh was positive there were a few people who were um you know predictably of the new militant atheist uh set weren't totally happy with his his more nuanced take on like what like religion what, what about it well just basically saying that everything about religion is completely antithetical to you know the values that we would 
want to hold basically critiquing religion as fundamentalist religion as opposed to looking at like hedges was talking about the full scope of how religious thought is used to explore morality and mm. and uh yeah didn't he kind of intangibles. address that and didn't we sort of address it in i the thought so like there's a difference between the mortification of people's spirituality into mm-hmm. into this organized hierarchical all-knowing all-seeing nonsense mega church nonsense and just somebody having some intuition about the universe independent possibly or mm-hmm. maybe not independent of their value system mm-hmm. but they yeah. still get mad about it it's I like think because they want to be they want to be smarter than somebody else on some subject <laughs> they want to think that somebody else is being silly i and think there's an element of there's an element of that where it's i did a bit of an interaction with with a guy uh, in the comments one of our listeners and which was good like he started out maybe a little bit on the belligerent side but i think through discussion and through a couple of other people's comments you know he's kind of said like you know i think i'm starting to see a little bit now but it was you know one of the things i said to him was you might want to think about the fact that there could be another explanation for people being religious which 90 plus percent of the world considers themselves there might be a different explanation than all those people are just stupid dumb dumbs who follow anything anyone else says you know Mm. explore that a little bit and i recommended that he look at hedge's book losing moses on the freeway I think it's a really interesting book in exploring, you know, what are the practical implications of the Ten Commandments, which I think we both read that book and thought was very interesting. That book is actually less about someone's spiritual beliefs and more about social cohesion. Which is another dominant role that religious thought has played in the history of humans for, right. for, for better and for worse. And I would say I would agree with new atheists or atheists, as I am an atheist, in that at this point in history, we need a new way of finding social cohesion that doesn't, Other than religion. That doesn't impose that doesn't impose someone's spiritual beliefs on everybody else or mm-hmm. doesn't impose someone's non-religious beliefs on everybody else. Yeah. Like capitalism, for example. Right. We don't need to go down this road again. We explained no. our no. position. But some of the other feedback was in relation to uh, Hedge's position on the, the black block. Uh, one listener, Mike Page, he suggested that we try to get David Graber, author David Graber, on the show to talk about a little bit, which I don't know if it's totally necessary. Is he we, the guy who, who was in the debate? He was not in the debate, no. No. What Hedges said that they had initially wanted to do the debate with Graeber. Right. But he didn't want to do it. Okay. Um, but he had written a response immediately after Hedges had written oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I read block that. piece. Yeah. We, um, we, we, we cited that in we our cited episode it, and agreed with many of its points. We agreed with many of its which points, Which nobody yes. listens to because all they want you to do is be on one polar, 100%. polar end of the argument. Yeah. Exactly. But he's actually, Graeber's an interesting author. Coincidentally, I just started reading uh, his latest book published earlier this year. It's called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. It's history of debt and its meaning and how it's used to control, control. people. Very interesting. But yes, thank you, Mike We Page. are greatly indebted to David Graeber for his book. But where the truthers, the, the Chris Hedges truthers come in, <laughs> was the next comment that we had received from a listener. Actually, she's not a listener. I think she's a propaganda fan who saw that we posted the interview. But according to her post here, she's not a propaganda fan if we agree with Chris Hedges at all on any subject. Yeah, she had had left a comment saying she was very disappointed because she said that, quote, Chris Hedges said he would turn an anarchist into the authorities during the debate about the, uh, the cancer in Occupy 
article, which he did not say. And then someone else had commented that three times during the debate, he explicitly said that he would not do this. She said she was there, though. She said she was. he was there and he said it. But I, I mean, I watched the debate. Yeah, I watched it too. I didn't hear. I didn't no. see him say that. Do we? Are we? Should we watch it again? That seems like it. That, that would take at least an hour. Could he have said it somewhere? I don't think so. Why would she say that if he didn't say it? So then she followed up and said, you know, and I said, listen, you know, we had a whole show where we talked about that debate. You should listen to it, and you should listen to this one to hear the interview with him to see what he says about it. And then she responded, which is fine. I think this is this exemplifies some of the. You know, when Hedges was talking about the attitude of Dawkins and others when it comes to the Bible or whatever, and they say, we don't need to read it. They just know. So she says, admittedly, I didn't listen to either one of them. So maybe I should refrain from any more commenting until I do, which is smart. If it is anything less than retracting his remarks about the black bloc, which he views as a people, not a tactic, then I will not be changing my mind. In any case, he is, as I said above, for reform of this system, and I am for tearing it down completely, so is he, I still won't agree with him, and I guess propaganda either, if they are agreeing with him. But if we only agree with some of the things he says, and some of the things Black Block says, maybe she can still like half of our songs. Yes. You can buy half of our records. Half of the album, and still not feel bad about supporting you guys. As if anybody agrees with everybody about everything and if you agree with somebody else who also doesn't agree yeah. with everything, that's why we're joking about this Hedges being the new 9-11. Yeah. Because there, it has created this strange, entrenched group of people who believe he is, is the big, he's a bigger threat than the U.S. government. The thing is, it's a lot easier if you want to choose a mortal enemy, which people love to do. It's a lot easier to choose Chris Hedges than it is to choose the entire neoliberal capitalist military industrial complex infrastructure it's a lot more manageable you can really get your arms around it you know yeah, and you can write a, a smarmy article and put it online and people will read it and go yeah that's Fuck right that guy he's a sellout and again go listen to our fucking episode about it because we we said hedges we didn't feel he was right on every fucking point no. and he in the interview he actually maybe for the first time Conceded. He, re- he conceded. He used. He probably shouldn't have used the word cancer, mm-hmm. which I think is something we talked about. Yes, on the show. And if he, I'm willing to bet that he, if he had have not used the word cancer in the title, would the reaction actually be been far more muted, probably. despite the content being exactly the same? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Anyway, so some interesting comments there. Yeah, just because we have somebody on and appreciate. Some things they Something say. about them or the bulk yeah. of the work. It doesn't mean we're fucking disciples of the people. No. Even if I incessantly cite the person's work <laughs> in everything I do, <laughs> it doesn't mean I agree with absolutely everything. So fucking chill out, fuck. Yeah. Plus, I don't give a shit about your fucking DIY anarcho-punk scene bullshit, so fuck off. Fuck you. <laughs> So, Derek, the other day, you made me watch a movie. Now, I don't watch many movies. I didn't make you do anything. 
And I don't ever sit through an entire movie. This one I sat through. What movie was it? We, I can't remember the fucking name of the movie. We Steal Secrets. Right. The story of WikiLeaks. Directed by one Alex Gibney. My initial reaction upon watching it was, no, that was pretty good. Seemed pretty well done. It Yes, it paints Julian Assange as a total weirdo. Nah, which total? Typical. Typical weirdo? The typical, not typical, but typical weirdo. Well, any everybody's a weirdo, and then they get placed in this position where the spotlight's on them, and right. the, weird, the weirdoness is leveraged by those who want them to seem more weird. Yeah. Everybody's fucking weird. Everybody has something weird going on. I am 100% normal. But anyways, you provided me with this movie, and you provided, yes. you provided me with some critiques of the movie. Yes. Which I actually read... Before I watched the movie, when okay. I read the critiques, one was by Robert Mann, one was by Chris Hedges, and I thought, oh, fuck, this movie's going to be just a brutal, embarrassing endorsement of the prevailing order. Right. Then I watched the movie and I thought, the same as you. That wasn't too bad. Yeah. I came away with, you know, the same conclusions about the need for transparency, the need to expose the mechanisms of state power, and how those sort of exposés reveal the corruption in the system the corruption and the immorality or amorality of that system Mm -hmm. let's give the listeners a very quick synopsis of this movie in case they haven't seen it yeah basically this movie follows the origins of julian assange in his early hacker days the formation of wikileaks the relationship that wikileaks forged with chelsea manning then known as bradley manning Getting that information, releasing it to the public, the sexual assault charges against Julian Assange in Sweden, uh, his worries about the attempts of extradition, his hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy, the fallout with Chelsea Manning and all of the controversy that surrounded all of these things. The betrayal of Chelsea Manning by Adrian Lamo. That's right. Yeah, the insane betrayal, which ultimately is how... Chelsea Manning was caught. Right. And then it's the, the film is interspersed with reactions uh, from different journalists, some mm-hmm. who are uh, focused on Assange's personality, some who focus on the principle of WikiLeaks, and then various members of the establishment who have uh, varying degrees of negative things to say about WikiLeaks generally. And various people who have formerly been involved with WikiLeaks and who no longer are. Right. So that's generally the the arch that it follows. So my my initial reaction, like I said, was pretty positive. I thought on the whole, it was a pro-WikiLeaks film in the philosophy of WikiLeaks and what they have done. That's what I thought too. And definitely not a pro-establishment film. It was not without its flaws. They try to make this point for a couple of people who have left the organization who are given a lot of airtime try to make this point about how WikiLeaks has become a transparency organization which has very little transparency and that therefore they become what they hate which I didn't really think didn't hold much water because they're not really a transparency organization well it, they are about they are about exposing things that that they feel the public should know with with the express mandate of keeping those sources anonymous yeah. so you you can't be transparent about your sources. The transparency is is for power. The power. Yeah. So I thought that point was maybe belabored a little bit and didn't really hold a lot of. Yeah, a little bit. And there was also 
a bit of armchair psychology going on specifically around Julian Assange, you know, some very strange little forays into, especially when talking about, you know, could it be he's intentionally putting holes in condoms and it's rooted in the fact that he lives in the online world and right. he has a deep psychological need to spread children around. It just seems, yeah. why is that there? Why I, is that there? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not and sure it, how that relates. I, I think overall, whatever egregious flaws there are in Julian Assange's personality as as everybody has. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, none of it is more important than the quote-unquote collateral murder video that uh, was provided to WikiLeaks, presumably through then Bradley Manning, mm-hmm. and then shown to the world to show you what war is really like and what your tax dollars, uh, how they're spent. Mm-hmm. The human story is interesting, and it's it's interesting because it just shows that everybody is weird and everybody's human, but the critiques of that angle are maybe critiques that are concerned about how the general populace is unable to parse those things. Right. That people are coming into the movie ready to believe all the fucking bullshit that the prevailing order is saying about WikiLeaks. You're in, you, you have blood on your hands. You're endangering the lives of American citizens. Right. And they'll, they'll just focus on Julian Assange being a strange guy to discredit the entire operation. Yeah. And I guess because that's not how my mind works. I can separate the two things. Right. That the movie looked good to me. The movie mm-hmm. seemed like an indictment of the, the backdoor dealings of state power Mm -hmm. yeah and i think the two pieces that i directed you to that i thought were the the two most critical reviews of it one was by chris hedges and it's funny because we were just talking about earlier about how you don't have to agree with just because you generally agree with someone's analysis of the state of the world doesn't mean you wholly endorse everything they do and for me this article that that hedges wrote reviewing this this documentary which was scathing unrelenting uh he just eviscerated this thing but i really found very little merit in in most of what he i felt like we watched different movies his his article was titled we steal secrets state agit prop which i was just i don't know i was surprised by this out of all people he understands nuance i think you know more than a, a lot of political writers but i think in this case he's just thinking about the optics of it he's thinking a film that's supposed to be a documentary about the story of wikileaks should should be about what they exposed and how that and the importance of that how it has impacted the world and nothing else you know as opposed to i mean telling the human story which makes it interesting and i think it gives us greater understanding of people in general you know when you see you you see how people react how they are they are this tapestry of uh of different motivations and weirdnesses and and everything else but there's a legitimate concern that a movie made about wikileaks and julian assange that not only gives a lot of screen time to members of the establishment who just dismiss everything yeah about like, julian like michael hayden yeah and then to all of Julian Assange's personal detractors, doesn't have an interview with Julian Assange in it. Yeah, there's, well, there's right there. 
you got to make it work. You got to get the guy. You got to get the interview. And if you don't have it, maybe don't make the movie. That yeah. could be that could be why people's initial re- reaction is negative. Like, how could you possibly make this movie without yeah. an interview? With Which Julian I Assange? mean, they address in the movie by saying how Julian Assange said he would do an interview, but for a million dollars. <laughs> well, but then that's not entirely true when you read the the Robert Mann follow up. I th- well, he, I he, re- it- he referenced that BBC offered him that that amount of money for an yeah. interview once. But did you read the debate th- between the two of them, the back and forth? A little bit. He he addresses that too. And I, I mean, I was relatively convinced. Like he's saying, he brought this up multiple times to me. No, he didn't say, give me a million dollars and we'll do the interview. But he kept bringing up the fact that he had received this offer and he would not agree to do the interview, even though he kept having discussions and he kept bringing this up. You know, so he's saying, I was there. It was plainly obvious to me that this was about money. You know, which is, I mean, he needs to raise money for, for WikiLeaks. And the guy's going to make Under money off his, off his film. Maybe. Documentaries do not make money. He wouldn't have made it if it's not going to make money. Well, he'll, he gets paid for the time that he's yeah. making it. So, and, and if his subject is this Julian Assange, and, he's, yep. and they're going to trot out all these people who are saying he's a fucking idiot and a weirdo, mm-hmm. Julian Assange's position could be, this movie can't get made if you don't have an interview right. with me, which the guy made anyways, which is... Yeah ridiculous so he well said, he addresses that too though he said in, in a lot of my documentaries my subjects are not in the films you know but in those documentaries people don't question my ability to accurately portray a subject just because i don't interview you know one of the chief players right so i think it that would, but it would seem helpful it to would have seem Julian helpful Assange yes. respond to these things yeah specifically yeah i can see on specific points there would be things that he would want to respond to but overall there were representations of the film from different people that on everything substantive about what WikiLeaks did, he's he's representing the viewpoints. And also there is a ton of footage of Julian Assange, other interviews where he is talking about. But the, major- the, major- the majority of, of the footage of Julian Assange are titillating moments, whether it's him dancing in a dance club or him interrupting his initial WikiLeaks partner at a, at a forum in, in Iceland or whatever it's all, or him, having a strange response to a front page headline on a you know newspaper it's all or him backing out of an interview because it doesn't like the line of questioning you know mm-hmm. there's no 3 minute monologue of him no delivering you know uh any responses to the accusations or or just letting him talk about like there's a few things obviously yeah. but the ones that are going to stick out to people are all these titillating things yeah it's true so that's why an interview would have been helpful yeah. because they, he doesn't do that to the the Congress guy he interviews. He doesn't show him fucking drunk at a frat house, fucking sexually assaulting somebody back in 1982. He doesn't show any of the journalists that are against Assange what they do in their time off. You know, yeah. you know, nobody else gets that treatment except Julian Assange, and he doesn't get an interview. Yeah, it's so true. It, it, but still, like you're saying, still despite all that, the movie still isn't an indictment of WikiLeaks. No, it's not. And I think that the fact that they tackled the sexual assault charges head on and didn't they didn't tiptoe around it and I felt like they rode the line between saying they didn't come out and say look at this guy he's a rapist, you know, or there's concrete evidence that he's going around poking holes in condoms and having sex with women. But they also didn't say this is clearly some trap set by the state in order to 
you know and i thought they represented that pretty fairly and that is an area where some supporters of wikileaks and julian assange i think just put blinders on and with no evidence to accept simply deduce that of course the whole thing is a ruse in order to smear him and there's not an ounce of truth to it right it's it's not an outlandish uh, conclusion to jump to no but 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 just just because it seems like it could be likely does not mean it's so because it also seems just as likely that this guy who has his own issues is conducting himself like a total fucking asshole with women because that certainly wouldn't be the first time that happened with Mm -hmm. you know people who consider themselves the vanguard or leaders in activist movements or whatever i i think there almost should have been two movies made from this movie and one should have been the one that people would have watched would have been the one with all the titillating stuff but Mm -hmm. it it would have been there was a term that came up in the movie called noble cause corruption Mm -hmm. that i thought was a really interesting term that could have been investigated further and there could have been a second documentary called noble cause corruption right and or actually this movie could have been called noble cause corruption (laughs) and not specifically been about whether wikileaks is endangering fucking sources in small towns and absurd allegations in relation to the slaughter that has happened in iraq but one that investigates human nature human foibles and in this specific context because it is interesting you know the idea of people believing so much in what they're doing that they think they are above they get a pass they get a pass on uh certain aspects of ethical behavior so that aspect of the movie i found interesting but it could have been dealt with in a separate movie yeah, I can see that. Again, because all you have to do is rewind to the footage of the guys, I think in the Apache, it must be an Apache helicopter, um, who slaughter uh, the Iraqi civilians and the journalists in the street. And it's like, oh yeah, none of this fucking shit matters. Yeah, that, Whether that is what it's all about. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And yeah. that's because this is the only mechanism for letting the world know that that happened and that that continues to happen. It's, it's the norm and letting the taxpayers know what the dollars are doing and letting the taxpayers then decide if they want to have a fucking war or not. One thing I wanted to go back to for a second was about the interpretations of the, you know, quote unquote general public watching this movie. I think something to keep in mind too is that I don't know how much the quote unquote general public watches documentaries by Alex Gibney. You know, I mean, it's you're already segmented into a niche Right. The minute you make a documentary and then the minute you make a documentary that is about WikiLeaks, you know, which which for all the attention that maybe we might pay it in the media we consume, I think in the outside world, you know, if you're just watching CNN or right. Fox News or CBC or whatever, when was the last time you read a story about WikiLeaks, even though they're still releasing information yeah you know? you're, you're either going to be somebody who's in favor of the the principles of wikileaks or you're going to be one of those kind of right-wing political junkies as they call themselves who right. just are looking for like aha i told you yeah you know so i don't know i mean i can i can see that danger there in the interpretation of it but i think it's less than than a similar movie say like some hollywood blockbuster that's trying to address a political issue right. and that does it with too much nuance uh, so that people come away maybe conflicted. 
And the other thing I wanted to say is that, because there was some critique that, especially from Hedges, that the film painted Chelsea Manning as having no political uh, reason for do- releasing these uh, the documents and the video and was simply just an emotional wreck and confused and just made it about a personality mm-hmm. issue rather than a pl- which again i i just can't agree with i think that, that is, part i agree with but it's made very apparent like the reason in the chat logs that they show it's very apparent that the reason that she is doing this is because she is disturbed and outraged right by the, by what she's seeing there and but the again the screen time that gets is relative to everything about gender confusion uh, and and just strange personal confessions to this Adrian Lamo guy. Yeah, uh, it's disproportionate, and people can come away with. But that's what the ch- that's what the chat logs are. That's what's in the chat logs, right? But then why not get an interview with Chelsea Manning? Why not why not dig deeper to find something besides the chat logs where yeah. Chelsea Manning talks about uh, being disgruntled with American imperialism? I guess I just felt like, well, this is the this is actually the story that unfolded. Like is, this is how it unfolded. And it is this how is, it un- this is the story of WikiLeaks. It is how it unfolded, but the, I can see how the perception would be this is just a fucked up person. Right. This again, if the general population was watching the movie, this person's right. just fucked. That guy thinks he's a fucking girl. Well, fucking throw him in prison, I say, because I don't want no fucking woman in the army anyways. I can't believe I came all the way down here to this political documentary film festival down in the heart of Texas to watch a movie about this square. Yeah, pretty much. I think it's a, it's a worthwhile documentary to watch. I think people should check it out if they're at all interested in, in the story. But the, the Robert Mann, he's a journalist featured in the, in the film, and he was pretty critical of it after it came out. His piece reviewing it was far more measured than Hedges just railing against it. And then there's a follow-up where Alex Gibney actually has a back and forth with Robert Mann about his uh, review. So those are both on uh, the monthly uh, website in Australia. We will put those links in the show notes. But I think people should check it out and get an interesting critical view on it. So what was your what was your takeaway that well exactly what it was beforehand that yeah. uh i believe the true nature of power should be unveiled to the global citizenry yep so i think wikileaks is a good idea yep and that people everywhere everywhere in the world every single person is fucking weird and mm-hmm. there's no exception there's not a single exception not even ralph nader i'm sure ralph nader probably jerks off to like some playboy deck of cards he got when he was uh, who knows you know who I just, knows in my head i just saw like a cartoonist's illustration of that happening yeah there's there is nobody who our society has this weird way of uh, mythologizing people to turn them into these paragons of virtue which mm-hmm. not a single person is people can be pretty consistent and and operate in ethical ways but everybody's fucked because this is the world is a crazy fucking place yep. and you we're just new to it yeah even if you're 80 years old you're 80 years old to a four billion year old universe so you don't know nothing and yeah. you're confused and <laughs> fucked just like everybody else and you're gonna do something weird along the way yeah so whatever 
So ultimately, my takeaway from... Oh, I forgot to ask you. What was your takeaway? (laughs) This is what I was left with after watching the movie. The fundamental message was this. Speaking of heroes, stop turning people into heroes. When we're looking for heroes, it dooms us to fail. It should be about the movement. It should be about the principles. It should be about the institutions that we build, not about the people because people are human. (laughs) They're fallible. They will disappoint us every time. And, you know, when they show this whole thing, people are making spray paint stencils of Julian Assange's face and free Julian Assange. And, you know, they turned it into about him, you know, and they even meant, you know, one James Ball, a former WikiLeaks member, who's now a journalist of The Guardian, he's interviewed in the film and he posits as truth that Julian Assange himself made the decision to make the, the fight about his personal legal troubles in Sweden to join those in the narrative with the fight about WikiLeaks. You know, which to me, like, I, I felt with, if it's true, I felt that that was particularly damning because it is... That is not what you should be doing. He should not be making WikiLeaks and him the same thing. You know, these should be, it should be about the organization. It should be about the work. So that was my takeaway. This is demonstrated time and time again. Don't make it about some guy, some guy, because it's always a guy. Don't make it about some guy. Mm -hmm. The mission is good. The organization is important. Mm -hmm. The the principles should stand and more, we need more organizations doing this, but to hang your hopes on, this weirdo hacker guy from Australia is insane. I know. It's like escape velocity radio. Don't make it about me anymore, people. I know <laughs> I'm a fucking hero of this podcast, but you can't do that. What if I die tomorrow? Or what, what if all of your your deep, twisted sexual perversions come to light and are exposed by me on the website? I don't think anybody will be surprised <laughs> by any revelations of sexual weirdness by me. You might actually gain some more followers on Twitter. I probably would. Look in my eyes, what do you see? The cult of personality. So Derek, you've done a study on antibiotics recently. Well, it's part of my PhD in uh, medicine. So tell me about it. What's got your dander up about antibiotics? You'll notice in our tagline, the tagline of the show, Chris, we include that we discuss science. Though somehow in the course of 15 shows, it feels... Have we ever discussed science? I have. Have we? Have you? Yeah. What do we talk about? I feel like it's been neglected. Of course it has. Somehow we have have careened ourselves into 
Conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories about the prevailing order, which, hey, everybody, come on now. Not in every case does the system try to fuck you, but go on. But there's been a story that caught my eye last month or so, which is about antibiotics or how some people have been terming it the potential end of the antibiotic era. I guess most people probably are aware of antibiotic resistant bacteria. You're always told to finish your antibiotics or whatever. Finish your courses of antibiotics because if you don't, then you only kill the weak organisms and the strongest ones survive and then they've been exposed to the antibiotics and they are even much stronger and then are resistant if you try to give them more of the same one in the future. And in fact, the inventor of antibiotics, Sir Alexander Fleming, Mm-hmm. warned about this very thing when he accepted the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1945. He said, it is not difficult to make microbes resistant to penicillin in the laboratory by exposing them to concentrations not sufficient to kill them. There is the danger that the ignorant man may easily underdose himself and by exposing his microbes to non-lethal quantities of the drug make them resistant. So basically this has been happening on an increasing scale for the past 50 or 60 years and uh, the Center for Disease Control released a paper recently which is titled the 2013 threat report antibiotic resistance threats in the United States I assume this would apply in Canada as well so I read this report and a lot of commentary on it and it's it's actually uh, it's kind of crazy the summary says each year in the United States, at least 2 million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And at least 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of these infections. Many more people die from conditions that were complicated by an antibiotic resistant infection. And then Dr. Thomas Frieden, he's a director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control, said, if we're not careful, we will soon be in a post antibiotic era for some patients and some microbes. We're already there. So going back to before antibiotics existed. Basically, yeah. I mean, I would imagine it would be quite a while before we could actually get there. But right now, they've kind of ranked a bunch of different microbes on a three-level threat scale in terms of how many of them they have found that have been antibiotic resistant, what the potential is in the future. If a microbe only has to morph a little bit in order to get into an antibiotic resistant strain and how many people that could possibly affect. You know, right now, the list of the high threat levels is pretty low. But on the on the lower threat levels, there's a lot, a lot of common infections that they're worried about kind of making the jump. So basically, the worry here is that, you know, we could get to a time where if you get pneumonia or, you know, if you get an infected scratch on your foot or whatever, rather than it being something that you can just take, you know, a one or two week course of some cheap antibiotics for, you either have to get you know, some new expensive antibiotics that perhaps a lot of people couldn't afford or there's just nothing to treat it at all and you could potentially lose limbs or... Again, this isn't happening tomorrow, but we're kind of inching towards that time. There are three major recommendations made in this report. One, don't get sick. (laughs) One, don't get... Actually, that is the first one. (laughs) Um, Infection prevention. So they're talking either about immunization, because I guess there are some uh, bacteria that you can actually get immunized against, but primarily just proper sanitation, like trying to re-educate people on simple stuff like hand washing and 
not going out when you're sick with with bacterial infections. The second is more appropriate use of antibiotics, which is doctors not prescribing antibiotics uh, for willy nilly, willy nilly for viral infections and things that cannot be affected, and also people not expecting that they're going to get an antibiotic for a cold or whatever something that it won't do anything for. And related to this, the number one abuser of antibiotics is not actually people taking antibiotics for infections, but it is animal agriculture. They are responsible for 80% by weight of antibiotic use in the United States. The third point on their on the CDC's list is continued development of new drugs, which I guess has been a stalling point for a long time because, simply put, antibiotic drugs aren't very profitable for pharmaceutical companies because they treat very short-term infections that not very many people get but in order to develop a new antibiotic drug it takes years and years and billions of dollars of research so just from a pure profit motive it's not there so the government would have to create some sort of incentive or there would have to be something else to happen in order to actually get new drugs researched and developed but regarding the animal agriculture there was another article that popped up right around this time about a five-year review on this sort of landmark report that the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production. Oh, that report stinks. It was called Putting Meat on the Table. (laughs) Done it. Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. And so this was five years ago and basically looked at how animal agriculture was conducted in America. And it was very critical of the U.S. animal agriculture industry made sweeping series of recommendations on how to reduce the environmental public health and animal welfare issues with the current they usually listen to those recommendations yeah they usually put them into practice yeah i think you just have to like submit it to uh congress and then they just pass some laws yeah and it's all done i think i think the companies do it without congress they just do it voluntarily don't they so last month the uh johns hopkins center for a livable future (laughs) good luck with that one Uh, They released a study analyzing the fate of all of these reforms, and their one-sentence conclusion was, the power of the industrial agriculture lobby had blunted nearly every attempt at change. So he's saying they're powerful. So this guy who wrote the original report, his name is Robert Martin, there, there was an interview, this was on the Yale Environment 360 blog. They interviewed him about this five-year reflections on this report. His quote about the animal agriculture industries, he said, I always say that big ag has more money than big tobacco did in efforts to regulate cigarettes and the personality of the National Rifle Association. I think it puts it in a context people can understand. So very powerful, very belligerent, heavy on the lobbying. Hmm. He really goes into how this low level use of daily antibiotics has been a serious issue and has directly impacted this growth of antibiotic resistant microbes in the general population. This little passage here, I think, illuminates it. He says, the practice that is common now is daily low-level amounts of antibiotics added to the animal feed or water to really suppress bacteria long enough for the animals to get through the production system. And what this does is it leads to very serious antibiotic resistance issues that are housed in these operations, but make their way out into the human population, either through flies carrying the resistant bacteria out, wild birds carrying them out, bacteria being flushed out in the waste of the animals or being carried out into the community by workers. I would just tell the workers to stop carrying it out. (laughs) 
Hey guys, like, leave it. Just leave, leave it. that behind. So um, why is this interesting to our listeners? So this is. I think this is interesting because I kind of related this back to what we were talking about last episode with Chris Hedges about the myth of human progress. This is like this is one area where we feel like we've got this thing licked. We've figured out a technological solution to this problem. He even cited it in in the interview. Yeah, one of the positive innovations, obviously. We're not dying all over the place from infectious disease, bacterial infections anyway. But part of our quote-unquote progress has also been, in the West anyway, deciding that market capitalism is the best way forward. This is how we're going to organize ourselves. And under market capitalism, when you are trying to cram as many animals as you can into your animal production facilities... That's what's so crazy. They're literally feeding them antibiotics all the time just to make sure they can live long enough to be killed. Yeah. So they know that over a long period of time, it's not going to work. They're going to get all this antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and the animals are going to die from some incurable infection because they're crowded in their own filth. And But just, just long enough to market. They've mastered that one level. Is it to get them there alive, or is it to get them there past USDA inspection? Would the meat carry the bacteria post-mortem? I think some, I did read something that was saying that it's uncommon for this bacteria to be able to live in the meat after, but it so does it's more, happen. It's more not having your entire herd die before they get yeah, to the knife. Exactly. That's fucking crazy. It's totally insane. There's no real conclusion to this. Well, or there could be. Stop eating meat. Stop supporting these industries. Stop supporting big egg and their fucking pharmaceutical monopoly on what you put in your body. It's pretty distressing. Once again, capitalism presaging its own demise by potentially decimating the the fodder it needs to live. Now, don't turn this into a conspiracy. This was our science section <laughs> with some science sounds in the background. <laughs> So there's this article by Charles Davis posted in Vice called The Exploited Laborers of the Liberal Media, which titillated me when I read the headline. Really? I dove right in. Did you know what was coming? I didn't know what was coming, no. Hmm. So basically, this article is talking about the use of interns in progressive or lefty online media. Over the past year, I've been noticing... There's been a lot more talk about how interns are, you know, basically the shit workers of the media industry, often completely unpaid or given totally meager stipends, and how it used to be a job where you would be running errands and stuff and getting coffee or whatever, but increasingly interns are actually doing real work right? Uh, that normally, like in this case, journalists would be doing, but they're just not getting paid anything for it. And this article is basically saying... Maybe you would expect this in big media corporations where people are scrambling to work there and they don't really necessarily care about the more niche ethics of labor, you know, maybe not necessarily people who are prone to support unions or minimum wage hikes or the types of things that progressive liberal media would support. But when you find these same practices in in lefty media organizations, it kind of raises eyebrows. 
So he calls out a list of organizations that he got in contact with, you know, asking for comment. Some got back, some didn't, you know, but most of the information he was just taking right off their websites about job postings they were making for interns, how much they were offering. And I mean, I'm not from that world. So I was really surprised at how, I don't know how anybody could ever even do this, you know, working for $15 a day or whatever. You're working a full-time job, basically. I don't know how you're supposed to support yourself. But he, so he called out some individual places and a couple of the bigger ones were Mother Jones and Democracy Now!, which are two sort of stalwart institutions of progressive lefty media. And in the case of Mother Jones, he says, assuming a 40-hour work week, and he, he notes here that many journalists work much longer hours than that, that means that a fellow at Mother Jones earns less than $6 an hour in a state, California, that has just raised the minimum wage to $10. In San Francisco, where the magazine is based, $1,000 a month isn't enough to pay for both food and shelter. And incidentally, Mother Jones, the day he published this article, some say in response, because the coincidence seems odd announced that they were raising their monthly stipend from a thousand dollars a month to fifteen hundred dollars a month so possibly a good direct consequence of pr consequence pr consequence but a tangible i guess benefit for the interns there or fellows yeah. as they call them and he points out that this is at a place where the editors of the magazine make one hundred and fifty thousand plus dollars a year right so obviously the magazine has money to spend but it's choosing to, to funnel it up to the top rather than sharing it a little more with the people at the bottom. And he reached out to Salon, uh, the new Republic democracy now and democracy now, which was, I thought the most notable and disappointing because I think it's probably the most radical out of all of the media outlets that he surveyed interns. There work for the first two months for free. And that's for a minimum of 20 hours a week. And then after that, they get a $15 expense allowance Every day you work for five or more hours. And then he points out that Amy Goodman at Democracy Now! Last year, she made $147,000 or something, which I don't think is to say that she doesn't deserve to make that money if they have the money to pay. But again, you know, for a show that champions labor rights and minimum wage increases and the traditional progressive left positions, you know, that people are generally underpaid in the top here take it all you would think that you would want to have a little more of an equitable distribution within your own organization than that yeah ideally yeah ideally I'm, i i guess i haven't thought the whole thing through yet obviously internships exist across the board in industries for sure we've seen it in the record industry every other label except g7 <laughs> every label on earth had internships yep. to, to do all the work that we did ourselves yep I guess the first thing that comes to mind, not necessarily in defense of these policies, is what's the difference between an internship and, and, and a volunteer position? Like, what, where's the line between volunteering and being an intern? Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess can, can that... You, can you volunteer... If they were volunteers, then would everyone be like, oh, that's okay? Well, I think that volunteers, uh, A, are usually doing the volunteer work in their spare time or after they're retired or something. Mm -hmm. And B, usually doing so for organizations that have no money, you know, or perhaps have very, very few paid employees who aren't making very much. So the, you feel there's a reason you have to volunteer. 
as but, opposed to an organization big... where you have dozens of staff members who are all paid reasonably well and then then they're basically exploiting free labor because you quote unquote like what they do but they are a business but, like but, any other but not knowing the financial outlook of democracy now i would assume that they operate within a tight budget despite amy goodman's salary which i don't think is outlandish for how much work she puts into that thing no i mean people volunteer for many things in winnipeg where the administrative class of that organization get paid way more than what amy goodman gets paid mm-hmm. i would think of the red cross or or whatever stuff like that yeah people volunteer their time all the time to that or clinic mm-hmm. for example they have tons of volunteers mm-hmm. and society in a way runs on volunteers because mm-hmm. there isn't money for a lot of these shoestring operations to pay all these people. Yeah. So to play devil's advocate, people who are looking at an intern position know what they're getting into. It's not like they think, oh, I'm going to get 10 bucks an hour and then they show up and they're suddenly not getting paid. They like the project. I remember Fat Records, for an example, always had a couple of interns doing shit work at the table in the middle of this office where everybody, all the employees were working. And they were hoping to get on as employees at Fat Records back in the golden era of, of the label. And they did. The people who did the work, did the shit work, eventually got on and got paid and got benefits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's a, it's a hiring process. If you just hire somebody, you know, kind of cold turkey, you don't know what you're going to get. But if you hire somebody and you get to interact with them for a while, you can evaluate them. They can evaluate your workplace and they can fucking get up and walk after the first hour if they think it sucks. Or you know, vice versa, you can can them if they're fucking psychopaths or whatever. Yeah, I can see I can see your points there, but I think there are kind of two responses to that in the piece. Number one is that not all of these media organizations operate this way. There are some who, by by all outward appearances, would be seem to be less well funded than some of the others, like Democracy Now. New Republic, especially Salon, who has like a relationship with New York Times or something. The interns at these places, you know, he mentions Utney Reader, Descent Magazine, Truthout, and ProPublica. They all pay their interns either minimum wage or better. But isn't and the, isn't isn't the sorry to interrupt? But isn't yeah. the first difference there is that they all accept advertising dollars? Utney Reader for sure, or Truthdig for sure. You know, they generate income that Democracy Now doesn't. Yeah, that could... Well, ProPublica doesn't. Democracy Now is very well-funded. They get huge amounts of money from very large benefactors yeah. in the United States. I knew a guy who was an intern there. Yeah. He said they had to set up the studio from scratch every day in a rented fire... I don't know if they're still there. No, they have, they have like a, Their own a lead-certified, brand-new, renovated oh, studio yeah. now. Well, they good moved. for them. Yeah, they've, I mean, they've done, they've done a lot of work. They've come a long way. I think the point he's trying to make is like... Listen, you're in the position now where you can try to push this paradigm shift because it is it is a bit of a paradigm shift because it is the standard in the media industry anyway, mm-hmm. not in all industries. I think like when we were talking about this before, I was saying even when you're going to school to be a teacher, you're not interning for free. You're 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 a student teacher, but it's part you're getting your education credit while you're doing it. It's part of your schooling. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's not something you you graduate, you get a certificate saying I'm a teacher and then you go and work for free for a while, you know? Mm-hmm. You're expected to be paid for your work once you've... But are the interns, are they all journalists? Like, have they gone through journalism school or something? Or are they just people like... 
people who go through journalism school do that. They go because you but can't just it, you can't just walk in and get a job because you can't you can't get an intern job at Democracy Now without a journalist. Oh journalism? no, you can. But the internship has become the standard for how you get into the industry. Right. So, and this is the this is the second issue when you set this is the bar that you have to get over. Then you are effectively excluding a whole range of people right. people who are low income which is traditionally right in the yeah. states people of color that's that's a better to me that's right off the bat that's a better argument yeah because you can't afford else. to you can't afford to work for free yeah you know what i mean you don't have parents who have the money to keep supporting you yeah and you're just doing this you know sort of on almost on a whim hoping to yeah because your chances of actually gaining gainful employment yeah. in the in the media industry are probably fairly low mm-hmm. so I thought it was really interesting. Obviously, very provocative. It's a divisive issue, but like I said, this has been something that's been gaining more attention. More people are talking about it as an idea. Maybe we have to look at it's like we're trying to push the, you know, push into a new idea of you know what is the value of work. Why do we value some work and not others? Yeah, it shouldn't be just the standard to get into the industry. But I don't have. I'm I'm trying to muster some sympathy for people who accept internships and then complete the internship and then complain about it because they didn't get some fucking job they were dreaming of or something. Mm-hmm. But I do think that making it a standard does exclude everybody else who mm-hmm. can't, who doesn't have the resources, the, the leisure time to go do this. Yeah. But this is another one of those things that just will blow up into everybody throwing the baby out with the bathwater again. Democracy now will now be have no legitimacy across the world. Amy Goodman, so she's a rich sellout. <laughs> I, they should have him. Uh, they should have this guy on the show. There's some interesting food for thought there. It's interesting, but you you also see there is an allure to the idea of getting people to do the stuff you don't want to do for free, and somebody young and still interested in enthusiastic about something while you are yeah. older and you're like good god this is a nightmare you know <laughs> yeah i like i i don't think did we ever consider it at g7 or did, or did we we were just told to consider it we, we were I like think, we don't do that i think we talked about it we talked about the idea and then we thought about it and then we realized it would mean there'd be some other person we didn't know there in the office but we did we did essentially hire people who should have been interns <laughs> we paid them same as yeah. us yeah which shows just how fucking ahead of our time we were. And then and we, how we had a surplus of funds that we didn't know what to do with and then it ran out. Then we ran out because we paid the interns. If anybody out there wants to intern for me personally, not Escape Velocity Radio because we're against it, <laughs> but for me personally, get in touch and we'll work something out. And Did you just I, say getting touched? Get in touch. Oh, okay. You will get touched. You probably will end up getting touched, I'm afraid. <laughs> but... Contact me and we'll see what we can work out. I promise I'll pay you. In doll hairs. In doll hairs. Well, what would they actually do? What is it that I need done? I don't actually do anything. <laughs> They'd be sitting here like, Fuck, you don't do anything. <laughs> Shut up! Look important. Call somebody and tell them I'm busy. What can you get? A wooden for Christmas when he already owns a comb. What can you get in a hurry for a furry kind of friend like that? Take home.
a wooden for Christmas when he already owns a home? It's really the problem. What can you get? A wooden well, we're out of things to talk about, and I hear Santa's reindeer on the roof. So that means that that is it for episode 16 of Escape Velocity Radio. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by and his kick we want your feedback email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on the completely unused and neglected Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio to join the discussion about this episode or to talk about your favorite Christmas music or to check out the show notes, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. And if your mummy's not already kissing Santa Claus, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode becomes available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links, our email sign-up form, and our Christmas lists can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. Happy New Year, everybody! What?